endless time on Rav Sajigon. But, uh, but we're going to move on to Rav Shri Ragon. And moving to Rav Shri Ragon means we're moving to the last phase of the, uh, the real period of the Gaonim. I say the real period of the Gaonim because I think I mentioned once before, there is a period that isn't usually thought of as the Gaonim. It's already the Rishonim. And there are still people who are calling themselves Gaon. And we will probably discuss one figure from that, uh, from that time because he got into a fight with the Rambam. So, um, so we'll, we, may, uh, we may talk about him. But this, this brings us to um, Rav Shrira and then his son, Rav Hai. And Rav Shrira we've already talked about somewhat because we've talked about the letter of Rav Shrira Gaon uh, insofar as it's given us a lot of the history that we have of who was a Gaon and when and some of the dynamics that happened between them. But Rav Shrira Gaon uh, was born in the year 906 and he passes away in the year 1006. Give or take with these, you know, a year or two in either direction, but basically he's, he lives a century. Um, he's extremely long-lived, as is Rav Hai um, after him. Uh, his father is Rav Hananya, his grandfather is Rav Yehudai, um, and they are both Gaonim, not the famous Rav Yehudai Gaon who we talked about. He's much earlier, the one who may have been the author of the Halachos Gedolos, but the name Yehudai. Uh, his grandfather, and they again, he, he is then at least third generation Gaon. Um, he was first to the Av Beisdin in Pompadisa. And then one of these things where, you know, we, we've, seen quite a few, we've seen quite a few of these. There's an issue with somebody being appoint, appointed as Gaon and not being recognized by everybody. So there was somebody, Nehemiah ben Kohen Tzedek, or Kohen Sadok, as I've seen it in some places. Um, who was appointed Gaon in the year 960. But Nehemiah had undermined the previous Gaon, and so most of the Chachamim, including Rav Shrira, did not accept him. Nehemiah passes away in the year 968, and at that point, Rav Shrira is selected as Gaon. He's already 62 years old. Um, he made his son, Rav Hai, the Avbezdin. And we'll talk about Rav Hai. They, the two of them have a very close relationship in terms of their careers and the things that they do. And they, uh, it's very clear, like Rav Hai learns from his father. He adopts a lot of the methods that his father adopts. Um, and this introduces us a little bit to the political side or the communal side, perhaps, of running a yeshiva at that time in that place. Um, you know, I, I, until I learned about Rav Shira, I had not given a lot of thought to what it meant to you know, having yeshiva in Bama. Okay, fine, it's a center, people come there, they learn, they're chachamim, they're teaching Torah, they're learning Torah, I don't know. Um, but when you start reading about what Rav Shrira did, you start to, to recognize some of the administrative aspects of this. So part of that was that he was a fundraiser. Um, this was a time when Pumbedisa was in decline. We've talked about before how the period of the Gaonim really comes to an end, um, at a time when the areas where they are based are no longer the financial centers. And so there's an economic decline going on. So he spends time fundraising for the, uh, you know, for the yeshiva in the community. Part of that is an adult ed campaign outside of the yeshiva. So he gives public yarche kala 
in both, he has two things really. Number one, he has Yerchei Kala in the yeshiva, which we find referenced in the Gemara's time, that they had these gatherings for people to come from far away. So he builds up the Yerchei Kala campaign for people who are advanced, as well as public shiurim in the community for younger Talmidim. He solicits the surrounding communities to send their questions to the Gaonim in an attempt to centralize authority and build people's association with the, uh, with the yeshiva. Wasn't that, happening, wasn't that what had happened anyway? Yeah, but you're seeing a period of decentralization. You're seeing other communities start to grow. Spain, for example, is starting to grow. Yeah, correct. Not, not, not in Pompadisa. This is now beyond that. Right. And, and Correct. populations are migrating over into northern Africa. And so, so not just financial influence, but the actual population is getting smaller? Yes. I mean, the two go hand in hand. Right. Um, there's been some very interesting work on him done by Dr. Henry Abramson, if you're familiar with him. So he's a very interesting fellow. I first came across him having nothing to do with history, um, but he wrote an article on... Um, basically the yeshiva. It's an article about what it's like to learn in base medrash, written for an educational popula- um, publication. I don't remember anymore what it was. It was beautiful. It was, uh, it, it, was, it was really a beautiful article. It was called something like 400 times and something. You know, reference to you prayed a story where he teaches the Talmud 400 times. The, uh, it's a great article, very worth reading. Uh, maybe I'll, uh, I'll send it to you later. The, uh, but it, it turned out afterwards that two things were very interesting about Dr. Abramson. Um, number one is he has made history his thing. So he now speaks in Jewish communities. He's got lectures online um, about these periods. And I came across something of his that uh, gave me some background on Rosh Shrira. Um, and then the other is that he's from a small community in northern Ontario, I believe, originally, <laughs> which was cool. Um, I don't have, like, I sound like I'm an expert on him. I, I've listened to one of his shiur, but, uh, but, but I've read a couple of articles of his, and he's great. Um, the other is that there's a, a great piece on Rav Haigon that I'll be referencing when we get into Rav Haigon uh, from, a, uh, um, from a Rav Mursky, and also a book by, Robert, by uh, Professor Robert Brody, who I've mentioned before. Okay, in any case, um, Rav Shrira um, wrote in both Arabic and Aramaic, trying to reach a broader community as well. Um, he runs into trouble in terms of his career in the year 997. And you do the math and you realize he's 90 years old at this point. Why does he have a career? But he's 90 and still going. And his enemies denounce him and his son Rav Hai to the caliph at the time because of their connections to lands outside of the caliph's control across North Africa um, you know, and beyond. And the reason why um, why this was such an issue was because, you know, I mean, for him it was not. He had Talmidim who were there. He had Chuvos that he was writing to those communities. But to the caliph, this was a sign of he's collaborating with people outside of my empire who might be a threat to me. Spain, you know, would be an example of that. So um, he puts, he puts Rashira in jail, um, and that ruins his health. So he resigns as Gaon when he gets out, um, and he makes Ravhai go into Gaon, but he never really recovers uh, from that. The last years of his life are in, are in poor health. Is this the height of Islam? I, I don't know. I, I, it's certainly when they're... They, you have a strong caliphate at this stage. Uh. 
Um, that's true, but things are shifting. The center of Islam is really shifting. The Andalusian center, right? Uh-huh. You know, from where it is right now, which is in this area that's based in Baghdad. Okay. The, yeah. uh, that's spreading in North Africa, that's in uh-huh. Byzantium, that's in, yeah, the, um, it's spreading northwest towards, uh, towards Andalusia, Spain, yeah, so Portugal. Why is he worried about Spain? Because it's not his caliphate. Yeah, there, there's competition within the Islamic world. It's not like there's a one central authority. Oh. Correct. It's already splintered. Yeah. Pretty soon, a couple hundred years. Yeah, that but being, that, it splintered earlier than that. The Shia and the Sunni, like you, you that know. being Sunni and Shia. This is not this is not a Sunni Shia split. Oh. This is just no, dynasties. But, right. but yes, no, they they split pretty early on. Right. I mean, that shouldn't be a shock to us as Jews. Right. <laughs> You know, it's not, it's not like that's far in toss. How long did it take our monarchy, our dynasty, to split? <laughs> so, the um, the the big thing about Rav Shrira that everybody thinks about is, of course, Igeras Rav Shrira Gom, this letter that he wrote. So, I brought you in source number one a little bit of the questions that were sent to Rav Shrira. It's pulled from his response to them. So I'll, I'll give you the full list of questions. This is just some of them. But he says, Vishisha Altam, you asked me the following question. Keitza Nichtava Ha Mishnah. How was Mishnah recorded? Is it that already from the Anshikness Sagdola, the beginning of the second base Hamikdash, after the Nevi'im, right? Anshikness Sagdola, we're told, includes Chagai Zechariah Malachi, the last of the Nevi'im. Um, did they start writing the Mishnah? And then it's just, by the time you get to Rabbi, so he closes it and says, okay, now it's sealed. Hare, Ruba, Stamahi. They ask a really good question. If that's true, why is it that most of the Mishnah has no names? Right? It's just, this is the law. Right? Ustamas Nisin, Rabbi Meir. And in the event that you don't have a name, we assume Rabbi Meir is the author, right? Assuming it's not a machlokas between an anonymous Chacham and somebody else, we assume the Stam Mishnah is Rabbi Meir. Rabbi Meir is the Rebbe of Rabbi Yudah Hanasi. He's the end of that period. Why are they writing this for 600 years or whatever it is, and yet the, uh, the Stam one is Rabbi Meir and not somebody from earlier within that period? And most of the Chachamim, whose names are mentioned there, Rabbi Meir, Rabbi Yehuda, Rabbi Yossi, Rabbi Shimon, they're all Tamidim of Rabbi Akiva. How is it that they dominate the Mishnah? We have all these rules in the Gemara and Erevin. They appear elsewhere, but Ervin Memvav is your big center for it. The, uh, the halacha follows this one when he disagrees with another. This one when he disagrees with another. They're all the end. They're all the end. They're the end of the second base Hamikdash. Why did they abandon either the, the many early ones or the greater early ones in order to accept the words of the later ones? And even stronger if you tell me that Mishnah is only recorded you know, at the end, in Rebbe's day. They weren't writing at the end of the So, you know, I, I don't understand. Why did you omit all those early Chachamim? Why did Rebbe writing this ignore everybody before the last couple of generations? 
So that's, those are really his first two questions that he addresses. Number one, if Mishnah is ancient, why are all the names from the Talmud Rabbi Akiva and the Stam is always Rabbi Meir? And number two, why are we always poskining like that last generation? What happened to all the earlier generations? Um, other questions that he's asked are, why are the Mesechtos in an odd order? Now, keep in mind, the Mesechta order that they have is not the Mesechta order that we have. Publishers play games for various reasons over time. Tosfos will sometimes ask, why is it in this order versus that order? So they asked him, they had sukkah before Beitzah. So they wanted to know, why is sukkah before Beitzah? The truth is, like in our standard shas, it also is. We do Rosh Hashanah Yuma sukkah before we do Beitzah. So he's going to have to address it. But, the, um, but they ask him, Beitzah is sort of fundamentals of Yom Tov. Shouldn't you do the fundamentals of Yom Tov before you get to the specific Yom Yom Tovim? Yeah, so why, why is that first? And why are both of them before Rosh Hashanah, which is not so in ours, but that's the way they did it, is they had them both before Rosh Hashanah. Why are they both before Rosh Hashanah? Um, they wanted to know, why do we have a Tosefta? Right? At we, all. Yeah, why is there such a thing as a Tosefta? Meaning the Mishnah is Rebbe's canonization. Right? Here are the, here's the outline of the laws that you need. And then you have the Tosefta, which I think is credited to Raboshia, which takes the halachos that didn't make it into the Mishnah. And they want to know, so I don't understand, why is it not in the Mishnah? And if there's a reason why it's not in the Mishnah, why are we bothering with it? Why, what, what's the Tosefta for? Well, and, and why not ask that same question on Brysos? Well, Brysos even further. Brysos don't get canonized. Someone in the Gemara quotes a Brysa. They're saying, like, why did you canonize? Yeah, what's that for? Then their next question is, how were the Brysos recorded? If they're not in the Mishnah and they're not in the Tosefta, why does anybody know them? And how did the Gemara get recorded as well? And then who were the Savoroi? These people who we've talked about a little bit who are pre-Gaonim, who are doing work on the, uh, on the Gemara. Like, who, who are they? So those are the questions that they ask um, that they ask with Sri Ragon. And really, like, you know, we could sit down and learn Igaris with Sri Ragon. Like, as opposed to what we're doing, we're just, you know, running and we're not going to see all of his answers to all of these questions. Um, there is a, uh, a Hebrew English version of it that I have that's kind of academic, um, but it's a good, yeah, it, it's, it's readable. Um, and I think. I think I remember, I could be remembering wrong, but if you wanted to take a look, I think on Sfaria they actually have one of the translations of the Geras of Shurgan. I could be remembering that wrong. I, I, I don't remember that for sure, but they might have it. So Rav Shreer himself, before we get to what he wrote in the Geras, just to understand, um, Rav Shreer himself is a major halachic figure. We shouldn't get confused and think he wrote this history and that's all we need to know about him. Um, it's not true. We see him quoted by Rishonim and later on major issues. So I gave you three examples. Uh, if you take a look at source number two, this is the Rashba. The Rashba is dealing with an issue which actually gets quoted in our day regarding prenuptial agreements. The, the idea is they wanted to have an enactment that if a woman accepts Kiddushin money, it will only still be a valid Kiddushin if it comports with a certain enactment within the community. You know, the community wants to regulate marriages. They want to avoid certain things happening, things that they don't approve of. So they'll say, we are making a base, our basin is making a condition. From now forward, anybody who tries to execute Kiddushin in our area, in the event that they do it in the way that we approve of, it's valid. If they don't, 
We act like Hefker Bays did, like the, this, this never happened, there is no Kiddushin. So the Rashba addresses this, and he invokes with Shrira. Take a look at source number two. He says, Ve'ilu ratsu l'taken hakehilos. If the communities assembled were to want to enact, o kehilo, o kehilo, or each one individually wanted to enact, to prevent these problems, people doing kiddushin in an inappropriate way, eloping, not getting approval of the parents, whatever it is that's bothering us. Let them make a takana with everybody assembled. And they could declare void from now and forever, oh, Adzman Sheyirtzu, or till whatever date they want to set, that any money that is given to a woman from this community should be entirely ownerless. Unless she is willing and her father is willing, Oh, or that it has to be done in front of so-and-so or such a body. Whatever it is that they want to enact, if they want to avoid inappropriate marriages, so they want to make sure that they're going to be executed you know, with a certain solemnity or in a certain environment, so they'll just say, well, it's not recognized if it's not done in that, in that way. Remember, you don't need a rabbi for kiddushin. Right, so anybody could do this. Get two witnesses, do, you know, give the money, and that's it. Um, and the Rashba says, you know what? Rav Shriragon did this, as did his ancestors. And he wrote a tshuva telling another community to do this as well. So this becomes a big deal in the modern age because there are issues, there are problems. So as an example, you may remember the case. It's now a while ago. It's got to be about 25 years ago, I think. It was in Montreal, if I remember correctly, that there was a divorce issue going on, and there was a custody battle going on. And the, uh, and the father announced that he had accepted Kiddushin from somebody for, on behalf of his minor daughter, and therefore she would never be able to get married. And the only way that he would divulge who it was and allow for a get would be in the event that he got his way on this, you know, divorce agreement. So a whole bunch of chubos came out to argue that he did not have the halachic power to do what he did and didn't have the credibility for it, all finding ways to, to undermine him. But you could do this very simply, right? Just follow what Rashiya did, what the Rashba recommended, have Bate did make a declaration. Any time that somebody gives Kiddushin money for a minor, it is null and void. Or anybody who does it and you know come up with whatever description of the circumstances you want to avoid, it's null and void. We do not accept it. Me'ata olam now and forever, and therefore you could you could you know, avoid the problem. No, 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 it won't work. It won't work after the fact, but from now forward, the uh, to avoid people you know emulating this uh, this practice, um, it came up. It, it came up, I believe, also this this idea in uh, the tripartite agreement. There's, a, uh, there's an attempt to create a prenup um, called the tripartite agreement. I'm blanking right now on the name of the woman who drafted it. Don't remember anymore. Um, I think it's Rachel with an L. Last name is with an L, but I, I'm blanking. Um, but one, uh, it's, it's supposed to rest on three sort of pillars that make it work. And, uh, and one of the pillars for this is a community enactment that in the event that 
they live apart and he won't give a get, then we don't accept the Kedushin in the first place. Right. They, um, so that, I mean, that's problematic. Well, I gave a shear on it at one point. It's on Why You Tell Yeah. It, it's problem. yeah, it's a bit of a mess. I mean, <clears throat> the whole conditional thing. Uh, yeah, the, there there are there are problems with it. But that's their their point is to take three different methods, which each one have their problems, and say, well, if you combine all three, you know, the, you you get something useful. I don't uh, um, Lev Moore. That's it. Rachel Lev Moore is the uh, is the one who created this. Okay. Lev Moore. L E V M O R. So that's a case in which Rav Shrira gets invoked, and look at, you know, it's the Rashba. So you're talking about somebody who's the end of the 13th century, beginning of the 14th century, and they're invoking Rav Shrira from 400 years earlier um, with his recommendation. Um, another uh, example of, of this, where he gets invoked on a hot-button issue, the issue of going to secular courts to claim from a Jew. So the Beis Yosef quotes Rav Shira Gon approving he says, Somebody was found liable for a debt that he, uh, that he owes or someone had given him something to, uh, to watch. But Beistin does not have the power to get him to pay up. Don't think male. It's not male. It's a court. They find a non-Jewish court which is above board they don't accept bribes. They'll deal with this honestly. And they're willing to accept testimony by a Jew. He says, this, there is permission for the elders, for the Talmidim, to go to this non-Jewish judge in the non-Jewish court and testify that so-and-so owes money to so-and-so and it's a mitzvah to do so. He says, I have news for you. If a Jew stole from a non-Jew, we would testify in secular court, assuming it was an honest court, we would testify against the Jew in such a case. So therefore, we can testify in the case of the Jew against the Jew. They um, were able to, uh, to do so. And if somebody ever rebels against a din, meaning a verdict in court, first we issue a public warning. If he doesn't accept it, we testify against him. And we will collect from him in the non-Jewish courts. First, we make a big public announcement in shul. We hold up davening to, uh, to announce this three times. And then after that, we say, all right, he can go. This is a major, major issue. The issue of resorting to secular courts was very controversial for centuries and centuries. It's still controversial today. They, um, but uh, but they, you know, this, this piece here... Um, is actually a quote from Rav Shrira Gaon. The, um, the Beis Yosef here is quoting Rav Shrira to, uh, to license this. Um, last example that I'll bring um, is a very interesting one in its, uh, in its own right. Um, it, it's about minhag. The, the, uh, the issue that we're, that we're dealing with is about the power of minhag. Um, take a look at, uh, at source number four. In context, what they're talking about is a communal practice that seems odd. You can understand why they would institute it, but it seems problematic. The practice was that if somebody returned a lost you know, bit of property to somebody, they would reimburse him for his efforts. 
Not where he had stipulated as a condition beforehand, I'm only going to go get this if somebody pays me back, but just in general. That was the minog in the community was established. Somebody restores your property, you reimburse them for their, uh, for their efforts. Um, the din is that in the event that he says beforehand, will you reimburse me? And you say yes, then you have to do so. But the lost property? No, not, no, 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 no. This, sorry. Reuven and Shimon. Reuven lost a ring, let's say. Shimon takes a day off of work, goes and finds the ring, says to Reuven, here's your ring, I want you to pay me for my lost day of work. Oh, return it to your proactive yeah. actions as right. opposed to your reactive actions. Yeah. So this is a surprising thing, that you would reimburse the person. He has a halakhic obligation to do this. Why are you reimbursing him? Nonetheless, that was the minig in the community. So if you take a look at source number four, he says there is an obligation not to alter the minog. Rav Shrira says, how do we know that minog is a thing? How do you know that custom is binding? Because the Pasuk says, don't trespass the boundary of another as set by the earlier generations. So this Pasuk in context in the Torah, the literal read, is about moving property lines. There's a marker, you're not allowed to do that, that's called stealing. However, we take the reference to that which earlier generations um, established as a boundary, and we say that applies to all things they establish as a boundary. Certainly for this, which would really be good for the community, it would, provo- it would avoid a lot of fights. He says, so you should continue to follow the minog. This is a tshuva of Rosh Shrira that's quoted in the, uh, in the tour. Interestingly, I wanted to see if his statements on Tanakh had anything, like did he get quoted anywhere in the Rishonim. So I did a quick Barilan search, but I only found one line in, um, in the Ramban. There's one Ramban I found and one Radak. Where, uh, where they quote Rav Shrira. It's not like it's oh, a right. widespread. So Ramban is on the Chumash. Um, Radak, actually Radak was also on Chumash, come to think of it. Radak was also on Chumash. No, 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 just statements of Rav Shrira. Uh, I just wanted to see, he gets quoted in Halakha all the time, so I was curious, is he quoted like Rav Zadjigon gets quoted on Tanakh all the time. The, uh, I wanted to see if I could find Rav Shrira, but I only found those two references in that, uh, in that database. He was a strong representative of the rationalist school among the Gaonim. We saw Rav Sadja already, who's very much a, uh, a rationalist, even though he's also a mystic at the same time, which is kind of weird. It existed in those days. Um, but Rav Shrira is very much a rationalist. And this gets quoted a lot. Source number five. Um, this, uh, this comment of his. People like this. Um, he's talking about the medications found in the Gemara. And he says, don't do it. Someone wrote to him asking him, hey, could you give us like, you know, Book of Cures based on what's in the Gemara? He said, that would be a terrible idea. The, um, take a look at source number five. You asked, You asked me to record for you the cures that are found in the seventh parak in Gittin. From where Rav and Shmuel start until the break for the Mishnah. How they ex- received that, that tradition of these cures, uperusho, as well as explaining it, belashon hagrim. The hagarim is wanderers. How did I translate here? The, uh, remember, I did this a while. Oh, just to provide their translations. I didn't translate it. Okay. The, um, so he says, He says, We have to tell you. 
The rabbis were not doctors. He said they recorded the things that they saw in their days. Somebody got sick, this is what they did, and they got better, so okay, so we're going to record this. This is not from the Book of Cures? No, this is not from the original. No, 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 no. No. He says, He says, these are not mitzvos. Don't take this as, you know, as Torah now that you have to do this cure. He says, do not rely on these cures. None of them do anything. He says, the only way you can do this, you can follow these, is if you were to investigate the medications and you were to know from expert doctors that doing this would not harm the patient. If it's not going to endanger the patients, then go ahead. It's really a striking statement that he's, that he's making, and there were those who disagreed strongly with this. This is not as though um, everybody said, oh, we're sure you go and said this, now that's it. You know, classic, you have... Um, the fact that certain medicines that are found in the Gemara, certain, certain situations that are described as dangerous in the Gemara, don't make it into the Rambam or don't make it into the Shulchan Aruch, but you find later big names like Rabbi Kiva Eger say, nonetheless, we still are concerned about these things because we don't really know what they were talking about. Nope. He says they recorded the medicine seen in their day. He's basically saying that it's wasted that it was put in. So I don't think he's saying it's wasted. I'll tell you why I say that. Um, the reason why it's in there, as I understand it, is because Chazal take preservation of your health as a halachic obligation. So in fulfillment of that halachic obligation, we're going to give you the guidance that we know. And even if it's true that a later generation comes along and says, no, that was, that, that was not medically accurate, they've taught us how they value right. oh, being up on medication. That's great, exactly. He doesn't say that. Yeah. He, that's my point. Yeah, no, exactly. it's true. He doesn't say that in his tshuva. I mean, we it, all know that these medications don't work. We know that. So, but we also have a little more say to understand there's a reason the Mars right. is not. What he's doing is the, when Abaye says, you know, Umrali aim, right? My nursemaid told me to do such and such in this circumstance. So it's the equivalent of if someone asked me, right, what's the treatment for a strep throat? My answer would be penicillin. Now, it could be that at some point they're going to come along and say, Torchiner, that's not the treatment for strep throat. You're supposed to leave it because otherwise you're creating antibiotic-resistant bacteria and not every strep throat needs it, and only if they have a fever or if they have this or they have that. But, you know, I grew up knowing this is what you do. You give somebody penicillin. So this is what they're doing. They're recording that, you know, that, that information. Vachin agmu yasana, and he said, so they taught us, va'amru lana avos v'save dilana, and that's what our ancestors told us. Not to do these cures, except that which is found, kigon kibla, like the case of kibla, dekimle lahu da'avid le the less be'akso, which we know you can do and it's not going to cause you any harm. So we've, we've tested this one, and we know that at the very least it's not going to hurt anybody. The, um, so this, gets, this gets heavily quoted in, uh, in, when, when you deal with medical halachashim about alternative medicine. The, um, the question of what are you doing with something that does not have 
the stamp necessarily of what's considered the board-certified medical establishment. So you point to this, and he says, look, if you can determine that it's not going to hurt anybody, so go ahead. But if it could hurt and you don't have the stamp, then that becomes a problem. Now, I'm not weighing in right now on alternative medicine. If you want to go online, you can find my shear on it, and, and it's controversial enough there. But, um, but Sri Ragon says you have to go to Rof in Bikiam. You have to go to expert doctors for approval before you're going to, uh, before you're going to do something. That's the, that's the idea. But he's best known, for sure, for his Igeret. After all is said and done, He's best known for the, uh, for the Igeret. And it's really a misnomer to say Igeres Rav Shriagon because there were two. There were, there were two letters. One was the major letter, and then there was another one that added some detail afterwards, and there are actually two editions of them. But what he does is he sets out the history of Misora. Was it kind of the two letters? Just word of the ah, so, um, no, so there's the main letter, and then he has an addendum. But the, um, I thought you were asking a different question. The context for it is combating Karaism. That's what this is really about. You have Karaites who are saying, you know, the rabbis just made things up or we are entitled to say things just like they are. And so he's trying to defend Teresha Baal Peh as we have it and to say, no, Mishnah isn't just some random thing. Um, you know, and here's, here's how we got where we are. That's what he's It seems like it's just his letter. It really seems like it's just his, uh, his letter, yeah. So what I did here on the sheet is to just bring you some samples and to translate them in that, that I thought would address some of, the, uh, some of the questions, but we're not going to, you know, basically the, um, what I want to do is go through the question of how the Mishnah was written and why do we only know the names of the later generations. And I also want to go through, it won't be this week, some of that even won't be this week, but I want to go through um, what, where the Tosefta and Brysa comes from. Because um, those, those, are, those are perpetual questions. You know, the why is this in this order and that in that order? Less compelling on the, uh, on the list of, uh, of challenges. So, the, um, so in terms of the question of how the Mishnah gets written and why I only know the names of the letter generations, take a look at... Source number six. He says, "Hachin Chazina devaday shisha shisa sidre Mishnah Rabbeinu Akados Tartzinun kihechi de Garcilo." He says the six orders of the Mishnah that we have, Rabbeinu Akados, Rabbi Yudah Hanasi, he was the one who set them down as they learned them. Hilchasa de Basar Hilchasa, law after law, lahosif ve'ein ligroa, and he said, "I'm sorry, the." Um, I'm just looking at my translation. The, um, it's funny, I, I wonder if, I, in, my, in my translation I wrote, one should neither add nor subtract. I did this translation on a previous occasion when I talked about this, and I don't remember why I wrote neither add nor subtract, when in the Hebrew there's only lahosif, ve'en legroa. I'm missing the word ain. So I need to go back to the original and see if I omitted the ain in my Hebrew, or if I added something and why I would have done that. I, clearly, the idea in it is definitely don't add and don't subtract, right? That's his point. The anti karite But it's not, there's no A in there, so I'm not sure. Vahachi amrinam bigamara diavamos prakabal yevimto, masnisin amos askin bime rebi. The Gemara itself, and Yavamo says, when was the Mishnah established? It was established in the days of Rebbe, Rabbi Yudah Hanasi. Established when he started or stopped? 
Concluded. Concluded. He's going to talk about when he started. And as for your question of why did they abandon the many early ones in favor of the later ones, we're only saying that Allah follows this last generation, or the last two or three generations, he answers, That's not what they did. They did not abandon the greater or the great early ones. All of them had learned what the earlier ones taught. They knew their explanations and reasons for the halachos. After all, look at Hillel. When they appointed Hillel as the Nasi, Hillel said to Bnei Becerra, if you remember the Gemara in Psachim, this is, Arab Pesach came out on Shabbos one year. Now, that happens. And it happens in weird patterns, right? You go like 20 years without it happening, and then it happens again four years later. That's what we're in the middle of right now. The, uh, happens it, happens, it happened during, oh yeah, it happened during COVID. The, um, I forget, I think it was the first year of COVID. It was, real COVID. It, was, it was 2020 or 2021, I forget which one. 2020, because uh, okay. okay, and now it's going to happen again in 2025. Not this coming Pesach, but the Pesach it's after it. It happens again, and then it goes away for a while. And the result is that when it comes up, everybody panics. What do I do? Erev Pesach is Shabbos. How do we handle Mechiras Chametz? What am I going to eat for Lecha Mishnah, my meals? And everybody right. panics. So in those days, they had a different problem. The problem they had was, how do you get your knife to the Beis HaMikdash in order to shech the carbon Pesach? That was their, uh, that was their big dilemma, because it's Shabbos. You do shech it on Shabbos, just like other carbonos that have to be done that day. Um, but how do you get your knife there? Anybody, anybody, because everybody's doing carbon Pesach. Yeah, well, they didn't do their own shechita necessarily. You had the Kohanim take care of it, although you don't have to. It's a carbon. Anybody can. But, but they, they would bring their own knife. Why? Probably because if you use a limited number of knives, get a nick, and then you have a problem. You, you know? Isn't this for the, the problem? Yeah, yes. There's a whole assembly line. The Gemara Pesachim describes how they did it. The Balabatim are bringing their animal, and the Balabatim are bringing the knife. That's it. They brought the knife. They brought the knife, they yeah. The knife. So, the, um, so they end up having, Hillel ends up answering the question. He says, you embed the knife in the wool of the sheep, and you walk the sheep there, and that way the knife is, uh, the knife is present. So, point being, that um, they didn't know what to do, and Hillel gave them the answer. Hillel was the one who answered. So he quotes that line that Hillel says to them, What was the cause that I should become the Nasi? It was because you were lazy. You didn't learn from Shmaya and Atalia. And if you had learned from them, you would have known this too. The um, point being, he credits his learning not to his own ingenuity, but to the fact that he learned it from earlier ones. So even though you will never find a line in the Gemara, the halacha follows Shmaya, or the halacha follows Avtalion, they're getting their Torah from Shmaya and Avtalion anyway. They were the repository. Correct. That's, his, that's the idea. And he says, V'hachi havya milsa derishonim, the V'hachi havya milsa derishonim lo isyado shmoaz haon, ela shmozen shal nesim, shal avos based in Bilvad. And he says, you don't know the names of the early sages, you only know who the Nasi was and who the Abbasdin was, that gets recorded. Mishum to have a machlokas because they didn't disagree about anything. They knew all the reasons for Torah, for the halacha, they knew it all clearly. 
That must have been boring. The Tamud Anami Havu Yadi Lahon Yadiya Bura. They knew Gemara Kolt. It was clear. Vahavayos Vidikdukim Bimishnasan, all the questions, all the analyses, I'll call Dabra Vadavar in every matter. Datana Rabanan Parakesh Nochani quotes you Gumar Baba Basra to support that. He says everybody knew everything. There was no machlokas to be had. There was no lack of clarity. It was all straightforward. That's what he. Uh, that's what he says. Can we finish the source. We're all right. Uh, taking two, another minute or two. V'kama dava beis hamikdash kaim kochad v'chad meravasa hava migmar lahula talmidei tamei oraiso the mishnah the talmud. So as long as the beis hamikdash stood, each of the rabbis would teach his students the explanations for Torah, Mishnah, Gemara. B'mili de michper lahon b'shate with laws that he composed for them at that time. Umorula talmidayu kiechi dechazi, and he taught to the students as he saw fit. And he's quoted to the Gemara and Shabbos. Shammai and Hillel themselves, not their Talmidim, but Shammai and Hillel themselves, only disputed on three matters. That's what Ravuna said. The Kevin Dachar Beis Hamikdash Ba'azul Beitar Beis Hamikdash was destroyed. They went to Beitar. Vachar Nami Beitar and the Beitar is destroyed in 135. And the rabbis are scattered. Umishum Hanach Mahumos Ushmadim Veshibushim Shayu Ba'ososman because of those catastrophes. Lo Shimshu Atamidim Kolt Sarchan Unfishu Machlokos. Therefore, they didn't do proper shimush. They didn't learn everything, and that's how you ended up with Machlokos persecution, exile, flawed Misora. That's where you end up with all of your uh, disputes. So, God willing, next time we'll uh, we'll continue with this as he as he gives us this um, this explanation for for where things came from and uh, and how they evolved. And I have to go back and look at that why that word ain is not there.